They have now come to my town. They moved to the store across the street from my house. They are the two most notorious white races in the country. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Jessica Henkin. And I'm Laura Wexler. This week on the podcast, After Emmett, we're featuring an unforgettable story from a writer named John Milton Wesley that's about growing up in Ruleville, Mississippi, among famed civil rights activists like Medgar Evers and Fannie Lou Hamer, and among the men who killed Emmett Till which occurred 67 years ago this week. It was the summer of 1955. I was eight years old. I lived in a little town called Ruleville, Mississippi. It was about 10 miles from a place called Mount Bayou, Mississippi. That was an all-black town. As a matter of fact, it was the first town that Mega Evers had his first job in. He worked for a doctor there by the name of T.R. M. Howard. Dr. Howard mentored Rosa Parks, Charles Evers, Mega Evers, and my godmother, Fannie Lou Hamer, who lived in Ruleville, and she and my grandmother worked for the same rich white families. They were the help. Mr. Evers was my grandmother's life insurance agent. Mrs. Hamer and my grandmother, my, Mrs. Hamer worked as a cook. My grandmother had gone to Alcorn. She was the, the nanny. We lived on Weber Street. Weber Street intersected with Highway 49W. What is it famous for? Parchment Penitentiary is on 49W. On the corner of 49W and Weber Street was a general store. That general store was run initially by a group of Italians, the Michelles. First, old man Michelle died, and then later, Mrs. Michelle ran the store, and she would have parties for kids in her backyard. She would sit in the window of her kitchen with her Winchester, smoking her Winstons, and any kid, black, white, Italian, Asian, could come to her parties on the 4th of July, and it was best that you not mess with them. <laughs> so it just so happens that the week of August 20th, a young man by the name of Emmett Till left Chicago on his way to Money, Mississippi, to visit his uncle and his aunt. He arrived in Money, arrived in, in Grenada, got the money, then later on that week, he and a group of my friends went to a little store in Money, Mississippi, and Emmett wanted to impress everybody with his access to white girls. Now, the Chicago boys were known for doing this. They would cut pictures out of Look magazine and pretend that those white girls were their girlfriends. So Emmett did the same thing, and everybody was impressed with that. Well, it just so happens that while at the store, Emmett was pushed, encouraged by his young friends, since he had experience with white girls, so he said, to go into the store and ask Miss Carolyn for a date. 
So Emmett goes into the store. His buddies are looking in, and he decides that he will say to Carolyn, well, hey, how'd you like a date, babe? You don't have to worry about me. I've been with white girls before. Well, he touched her hand, she said. She runs out of the store. She has a gun in the car. She runs out of the store. Emmett's friends decide that we better get him out of here. They go back to Mose Wright, his uncle's house. They talk about what had happened. In the meantime, Carolyn Bryant's husband comes home. Juanita Bryant, her sister, had been in the store with her. They decide that they are not going to tell Roy what has happened because they don't want Roy to tell J.W., who was his brother, J.W. Milan, because they knew if they told J.W., something bad would happen. Well, it turns out that Carolyn doesn't have to tell them because a young black kid working in the store in money decides to tell Roy one day that for some reason this young black friend of his had told Miss Carolyn how pretty she was. So Roy then begins to give this kid more cookies and more stuff. So he tells him more about what happened. Oh, yeah, he told us she was pretty and, and all of that. So Roy calls his half-brother, J.W., and tells J.W., you need to come over here because I got to whoop. We got to whoop this nigga. Well, they go. J.W. fills up his truck, decides to go to Mose Wright's house, Emmett's uncle, actually go to the house with a forty-five and a flashlight. They go into the house, ask Mose, did he have a nigga boy living there with him from Chicago? Said, yes, sir. Said, which one is it? Said, well, she's in the back. Roy J.W. Roy J. takes his forty-five and his flashlight, goes back to the room, uh, asks, which one is it? Emmett speaks up and says, yeah, it was me. Yeah, I talked to her. I've been with my girl before. He said, put your clothes on. Well, he starts putting his stuff on. Get, they get together. He leaves the house with Roy and J.W., He doesn't come back. About four days later, word gets out. Something's happened to Emmett. Nobody knows where he is. The next thing we know, a young kid is out fishing. And while he's fishing in the Tallahatchie River, there appears out of the water a set of knees. It turns out that Roy, that Roy Bryant and J.W. Milan has dumped Emmett Till's body into the Tallahatchie River. The interesting thing is, they go to trial, jury of their peers acquits them after 75 minutes of deliberation and lunch. Then they're set free. Well, when they're set free, they run out of money in Mississippi because they brought too much bad attention to the white families. So when they bring all this, they decide to, they need to get out of town. 
So the next thing we know is that old lady Michelle dies in the store on the corner. The store is closed for two or three weeks. Then we get word that the store is open again and all the accounts would be transferred and everybody's happy. A few weeks later, I wake up one morning and I go to the store. And guess who's running the store? Roy Bryant, J.W. Milan, and Carolyn Bryant. They have now come to my town. They move to the store across the street from my house. They are the two most notorious white races in the country. They have killed a black kid and been set free by their own peers. And now this is the place that I go to buy grocery, that I go to take my granddad's welfare check, that I have to walk past going to town, wherever I'm going, is at the end of the street where my church is, the end of the street where my school is. But they move in, and the first thing happens is that my little friend, Angie Shoemaker, who lives next door to me, despite the racism in Mississippi, we live across the street and very close to whites. Uh, their kids were, when their kids were in school, we were out. When we were out of school, their kids were in. So we didn't play with them, but we were around them. So anyway, they move in to the store. They run the store. They start to run the store. Everything changes for us. I was afraid of them because I knew them from the fields when I picked and chopped cotton. They were our straw bosses in the fields. They were the ones who, when we picked cotton, they would keep track of how much cotton you had picked that day. When you chopped cotton, they would tell you when you could go to lunch, what time you could start, and what time you couldn't. Another thing that's interesting about this is that on the days that the, cod, the dew was heavy, they would make sure that we didn't go into the field before the sun had burned some of the dew off. And they would make sure that we didn't by patrolling with their rifles and their forty-five coat pistols. But anyway, J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant move in next door, and we are afraid of them. We are afraid of them because they were known for their meanness. And then the craziest thing happens. J.W. Milam becomes our deputy sheriff. Now, <laughs> okay, he's not only killed a black kid, he's not only living across the street from me, all the police are already going to spend time at the store, and he becomes the deputy sheriff in my town. The years move forward, and keep in mind, this is the height of the civil rights movement. I cry, pray for, and cry for the children of Ukraine because I know the kind of fear that they've in, they're in, because I felt that fear. The difference is that in my case, Putin moved across the street in my case. Well, the interesting thing about it is that Mega Evers would come to our house because he was investigating hate crimes, and he would sit 
in our house, and he could watch the back of the Milam brother's store. Okay? So, he had tried to get into Ole Miss, keep in mind, in law school, 1954. He was represented by Thurgood Marshall, but they were in Baltimore. Interestingly enough, Thurgood lost the case in Mississippi, but he won the Supreme Court decision the same year. I had intended to move to Jackson. Well, I had intended. My grandmother died when I turned 13, 1963. To 1962, she died. I turned 13. I was going to move to Jackson, and I was going to go to work in Mr. Ebers' little store, little bodego store, little corner store. So I was all excited. He lived across the street from my aunt, Tito Mayfield, in North Jackson. So I get all excited. I moved to Jackson on June 12, 1963. When I get to Jackson about 8 o'clock that night, I fall asleep on the sofa in my, step, my stepfather and my mother's front room. About midnight, my aunt comes running in, beating on the door. They shot that boy. They shot that boy. My mother hit me and says, Tidoya, what are you talking about? They shot that boy. What boy? Mega. They had shot Mega Evers in his driveway the night that I got to Jackson. So I feel for the kids of Ukraine. Because I know their pain, I know their fear. Wait in the water, wait in the water, children, wait in the water. God's going Thank you. That story is so vivid. It's like the stories of when you're a child and just how vividly he remembered both what had been beautiful about that community and then what came to be really threatening and terrifying. Um, I just, and the way he was able to hold it all and sort of understand it and not understand it as a kid growing up there. I don't know. I just, I love that intimate view of history that he offers. Yeah, he's an incredible human being who's, in a previous uh, show, told this fascinating, heartbreaking story about his experience with uh, 9-11. So, yeah, he's seen a lot of the world, the good and the bad. And he works in Baltimore's fairly new Office of Civil Rights and Equity, and um, he feels like a wonderful person to be there. Um, And if you want to learn more about him, you can Google him, and you'll find the piece that he wrote for the Washington Post, which his story sort of was based on. Um, And then I ended up doing like a real deep dive back into the Emmett Till story and just was really got hold of me for a while. 
We hope this story gets hold of you, and we will get hold of you in a few weeks when we're back with more stories from The Stoop. Thanks for listening. Water, the